Hello and welcome to episode number 12 of Off The Block Swimming Podcast. Thank you all for downloading our show today. I'm your host, Robbie Cox. Now, a few weeks ago, the show went international when we called America to speak to Brett Hawke. Well, this week, people, it's happened again. And this time, we've called Bali to speak to former world record holder himself, one of the heroes from the men's 4x100-meter freestyle relay from the Sydney Olympic Games. Of course, I'm talking about Mr. Michael Klim. On our chat today with Clemmy, we talk about him dealing with the current coronavirus over in Bali, his early days in the pool traveling all around the world. We also discuss his disappointments and triumphs throughout his amazing swimming career, as well as his business with Milk & Co. Family life, and I managed to squeeze some lifestyle tips out of him that I think everybody can take something away from. So whatever you're doing, stop it. Set aside 45 minutes out of your schedule today. And get ready to be entertained because Ep 12 with Michael Klim starts now. Away they go. No problems with the start. There is two 100s in the second in it. Gary Hall Jr., the extrovert, and Ian Thorpe battling it out down the pool. Thorpe is starting to go away from him. Oh, he's blowing him away now. Thorpe's gone more than a metre on Van der Nuyen's hand. But the sinister of all eyes is the great man of Joining us today on the show is a three-time Olympian and a man whose international swimming career spans well over 10 years. Competing at World Champs, Pan Packs, Commonwealth Games, he's been a part of so many of our most memorable memories and uh, probably broke a few world records along the way whilst doing them. <laughs> Since then, he's gone on to have a very successful career in business with skincare range, uh, Milk & Co. Uh, and also, he can still be seen on Instagram going up and down the pool in his backyard <laughs> in Bali. It's a very big warm welcome to Off The Block Swimming Podcast to Mr. Michael Klim. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you, Robbie. Thanks for having me and thanks for the intro. <sighs> Not a trouble at all. It was actually really easy to, to write that intro, especially that bit about you and your backyard. I always see you on Instagram and I think, oh, what a bastard. Look at him just living the dream. Here, uh, here I am. Yeah, it was definitely a big selling point. And um, obviously, I've lived in, in Bali for nearly eight years. I yeah. sort of split my time between Australia and, and Bali. And nowadays, it's predominantly Bali with the occasional trip back to Australia where Milk and Co is still based in Sydney. So um yeah and actually even in these current times with COVID, you know, having uh it's only eighteen meters but it's still long enough for me to do laps and um and a little bit of space to do some outdoor workouts. It's it's really important. So I'm very uh very happy and and pretty grateful for that. Now, mate, obviously, uh, you've caught me today in, in Sydney, as I said, in uh, in the studios, which slashes my garage. Um, <laughs> we, we know you're in Bali. Whereabouts are you, mate? Are you in the house? Are you out the back? Are you in the pool? Where are you? Well, I'm actually literally sitting on the porch next to the pool. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's partly overcast, unfortunately. I was hoping to get some some rays at the same time as I spoke to you, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, it's, it's the first time it's been um, overcast in, in a little while, but it's, uh, it's, I don't know if it's anything to do with, uh, with, with COVID, but it's, 
the weather here has been exceptional and um, it's really hot at the moment. So, I, uh, yeah, it's yeah. It, actually, the porch does double up as my office, similar to your garage. <laughs> just not, just the view's not as good, mate. I'm looking at two garbage bags full of uh, full of drink bottles. So anyway, it's, it's all good, um, mate. We, we mentioned that the coronavirus, and obviously with with your business, what sort of effect has this had on you, and and business wise, and travelling, and and you and your family? Well, good. Look, no doubt, very similar to everyone else, it's had an effect. We've had to adjust as a company. Obviously, everyone has been working from home for quite some time now. But I looked, I guess we are fortunate in a sense that over half of our business is exporting back to China. Yeah. So um, for a company that, uh, I guess, with that, with that focus and China now seemingly getting back to normality, I, I, I think we're probably 80% operational back in China like we were previously. It's, it's um, you, you know, it's not too bad. It's, I guess it is quite uh, tricky trying to um, continue our manufacturing and our products are all made in Australia, made in Melbourne. So trying to uh, keep up with demand is, is the tricky part. But, it, you know, I think it's everyone's adjusted accordingly you know and you know it has been probably if anything it's for me trying to adjust working from home and having kids running around and mm. dogs and everything else so <laughs> yeah. it's, that's i think that's the hardest part i think we're you know as, as businesses we all try and do our best and everyone's been considerate and uh but i think it's it's more just you know and i think that's what i that's you know the positive thing that's we've taken out of it that we can be still as productive if not more so in maintaining a really good lifestyle you know or a connection with our family and mm. friends um and still staying safe so um look it has uh, definitely so going back to your question it has affected us but we've managed to uh I guess the the word that's been going around pivot accordingly yeah. and and try and minimize the damage Mate, talk to me about, you know, the, the kids and the house. Are the, do they still go to school at the moment? I know down here in, in Australia, obviously, school's off now, so a lot of the kids are stuck in the house. Are they driving you crazy? What's it, what's it like at home? Yeah, so look, for, for us, the kids actually, uh, the, the schools shut down very early in the piece, I think a little bit before Australian schools. So we've been homeschooling for or oh, close to maybe five weeks now, I think. So it's been... Uh, it's definitely been a challenge initially and uh, you know it's it's funny how every individual i've got three kids they've all sort of adopted at different at different rates and you know my youngest was really was found it really hard at the beginning she's only age but now she's you know she's exceptional she sets her alarm clocks in her in her ipad to to make sure she gets on the you know on the Google class chats and whatever, what, what have you. And whereas my son sort of struggles a little bit, he likes being told what to do. Very sort of, you know, yeah. <laughs> he's kind of a bit, bit aloof. So he <laughs> yeah. struggles with, with not having a, a structure around him. So he probably needs more support. And my, my 14 year old, she's pretty self-sufficient. So it has been a, yeah, it's been a learning curve, like for every parent out there that is, that is trying to manage this as best as we can. Mate, a lot of people stuck in the houses, as we said, with, with loved ones and it's presenting its challenges. Is there anyone from, from a former Australian team member's perspective that you wouldn't want to get in stuck in isolation with? Is there anyone that would just <laughs> pest you? 
<laughs> That's a very that, you're gonna throw me under the bus with that question. Yeah, man, uh, I, I look, like there, it. There, there, look, there's, there's, there was a lot of smelly male <laughs> swimmers out there, that, and that were just you know there, there, there was no decorum, and you know, look, I, I was very fortunate that I was you know predominantly throughout my career, I room with uh, with Hacky and Thorpey, mm. and to, both of them were some of the messiest people I know. Um, so I would I would actually clean up and fold the clothes and put them away just so my environment was the way I wanted to be. But um, but I think in yeah. So um, <laughs> look, the the great thing is about that the team around between you know say ninety seven right through to two thousand and seven was that I think we all got on really well you know uh, occasionally roommates change but you know we had a great group of people from you know Jeff Hugel obviously I mentioned Ian Thorpe and Grant Hackett and there's a bunch of great guys that are still friends to this day so Brett Hawke is you know continues to be a really close mate of mine and you know a bunch of others from Bill Kirby and Todd Pearson and Ash Callis, Chris Fidler catch up with you know on a regular basis and um, the entire swimming team, really. I mean, even the you know the the girls that I was able to to learn so much from Nicole Livingston, Patria Thomas, and um, you know those. I was very fortunate that the era of swimming that I was growing up in and looking for people I was looking up to were my teammates, and I was able to learn so much from Kieran Perkins was my my roomie at one point and to have him as a roomie is you know the, you know prior to to grant hackett mm. coming on board he was untouchable so it was uh yeah i think that that was that's why we were i, I imagine we were probably you know the the most feared kind of swim team outside of the us because we sort of had so many great swimmers rubbing shoulders with each other and thinking Hang on, if my mate's doing this, I can do the same. Yeah, mate. Have you ever thought of a job in politics? Because you're very, you're very carefully there politics your way around my my actual question. Yeah, okay. I'll let you. I'll let you. Yeah, I just don't. You know, I, I still want to keep my. I want to get those Christmas cards coming in, and you know, like yeah. you never know when I'm going to require a, a you know a favour from one of my mates, but. Uh, <laughs> no, it's all good, mate. Hey, listen. Now I know you're a very big St Kilda fan in the AFL. Yeah. Are you missing yeah, your footy? Because it's it's obviously it's not on. I'm a big NRL guy myself, but you know, myself. Yeah. No footy on. No. So, oh, look. Actually, in general sport, my my son is obsessed with the NBA. We've got a ring in the in the backyard, and mm-hmm. um, and obviously I follow the AFL as well. So just in general, having something. Uh, that we can sort of, you know, it's our, as males, you know, it's a bit of escapism, yeah. you know. So, um, yeah, definitely missing that. Living in Bali, I'm, I'm actually right next to a place called Finn's Rec Club, which pretty much shows every single game, plus I've got the app. So it's easy to stay on top of. So I'm hoping that, you know, when they started the games without the crowds, I thought, oh, hang on, we could still have a season, but obviously mm-hmm. things didn't progress that way. Um, look, I'm I'm sort of a, a bit of a St Kilda tragic. I always, you know, live with the hope that we will get that flag before my time is done. But uh, we uh, we seem to always fall over at the last hurdle. I've been at every grand final that we thought we were going to win. But yeah. um, but anyway, 
Um, maybe <laughs> next question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. We'll we'll move on now to your to your beginnings. So, um, you know, for a lot of people who don't know, you were actually born in Poland. So, what age did you guys yeah. make the trip over to Australia? How long were you over there for? Yeah. So, look, I, I had a pretty interesting upbringing in a sense that I actually didn't come straight from Poland to Australia. I moved to India for five years and then from from india we moved to germany for a couple of years and then from there we went to canada um and i i swam in canada for probably over a year and then finally ended up in australia when i was 11 and in 1989 um we went to the uh the state swimming center which was on batman avenue where, where federation square is now um and joined up to Mel Vixener, and that was uh, Gene Jackson was the head coach there. We had the, the swimmers, the likes of Nicole Livingston was was uh, probably the most notable. Mm-hmm. Um, Toby Heenan was swimming there. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll, I slotted into that. I actually signed up to the swimming club before even signing up to a school in the in the nearby area. <laughs> so for me, with all the with all the changes as I was growing up, swimming, I, you know, I learned to swim in India when I was a you know, a kid of probably two or three years of age. And as we changed and languages changed, schools changed, you know, my circle of friends changed. Swimming was something that, you know, as a kid, I, I was very lucky that even looking at my kids, I mean, Rocco's got basketball as a passion, but maybe my girls don't have anything that is probably as meaningful as swimming was to me at a, at, at their age. So, um, and, I, and I think it was probably something that it, you know, gave me a bit of comfort that no matter where I was, I could join a squad and still be not necessarily recognized, but I would be acknowledged for the ability to swim or, you know, I, I had that sort of talent. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty uh, interesting. So I guess swimming was a, it wasn't really like a, you know, something that I, I discovered through school sports or anything like that. Mate, you mentioned there, obviously, that you signed up to a sw- swim club in Melbourne even before you'd signed up for a school. What age mm. did, did you start to get a little bit more serious about swimming then? Well, I was already pretty serious, I think, at the age of 11. You know, I, I, I felt that um, Gene Jackson was, was my, my first coach in Australia and I, and I swam at the age championships uh, at the age of 12, which was... Um, at that at that time was 13 and under so i was still swimming uh, so i swam under under age and then um obviously had my first uh, age championships when i i actually went as a 13 year old i was lucky enough to win a few medals but so he was uh, yeah so pretty much from the age of 12 or 13 i was almost swimming once a day and um and then as i got to 14 15 started including a few double sessions and um, but yeah, so swimming was always a very big part of my life. You know, I don't remember going on any school camps, hardly any parties after <laughs> after, <laughs> after swimming training or anything yeah. like that. So um, yeah, so for, you know, but you know, I also was managed quite well in a sense that we could have easily probably trained a lot harder and and done a few more sessions. But uh, you know, my and you probably, I don't know if you, you know this, but my nickname was Lumpy and Chunky as I was growing up. And I was yep. still a very, very chubby and and probably a, a floody kid. And, and so we sort of managed that. And as I grew and, you know, I've sort of, you know, filled out, I guess, um, you know, we started stepping, stepping up the intensity and also the volume of training. And 
um, you know, at the age of sort of 16, 17, um, you know, that's where the, the big sort of improvements that are coming. Mate, you're known, obviously, for being super fast in butterfly and freestyle. Was that always the case? I mean, we just shock us by saying you could, you know, do a mean 100 breaststroke at 13? Or? <laughs> well, I, I, I did have probably my last age record was in backstroke. So I had the 100 oh. backstroke age, age record for... Um, for a few years, I can't remember. That was, I think, it was the 15 years hundred back at 58 one or something like Not that. Bad. So I was, I was able to swim backstroke, um, and probably one of my claims to fame was to win the win the Australian short course title in the 200 IM. I remember uh, that was for me that was a, a big thing because I was able to beat my really good friend <laughs> Matt Dunn and, yeah. and Robert Van Der Zandt and we we actually that was that was up at um, at French's Forest at the at the old pool up there. So back in the day, I was still able to do uh, do a little bit of IM, but uh, um, yeah, but. As you, as you know, you know, and when you get older, you need to start focusing and, and prioritizing those sort of events. And mm. pretty much when I moved to Canberra at the age of 16, 17, I started focusing purely on, on freestyle and butterfly. Now, mate, I like to go through a few bad habits uh, with some of my <laughs> guests because obviously yeah. you guys make it to the to the heights that some you know only dream of, and and it's obviously mm. a good thing sometimes to see whether you guys actually do have some of these bad habits that some of the younger swimmers yeah. out there have today. So I'll give you a few, and yeah. you just say yes or no. Like this is a mixed bag, really. Yeah. I've had guests say sure. no to all of them, and I think well done. And then I've had guests who you know <laughs> who you know Olympians saying yes to all of them. I did all of them, so we'll, we'll see okay. how we go. So all right, no worries. The first one is uh, feet on the bottom of the pool during laps. Oh, no. no. I'd say no to that one. Not, not bouncing <laughs> off the bottom. What about conveniently miscounting laps and finishing sooner than you should? Oh, yes, we did that. <laughs> See, I, I, trained, uh, I trained with – so when I moved to Canberra, I, I trained with Alex. I was joined – I joined the squad with Gennady Turetsky and Alex Popov yeah. was obviously the, the czar of sprint and, mm. you know, the fastest swimmer in history. And, you know, and when, if Alex wanted to cut laps, we were cutting laps. Yeah. And <laughs> so, uh, you know, so we, <laughs> you'd never, you'd never argue if Alex said we're finished, we're like, yep, we're done. <laughs> but, you know, like, so, uh, so yeah, um, I think we were, quite where he'd, he'd underwater we'd be coming off the last wall and <laughs> he'd give you the the scissor the scissor signal and that means that's the last lap so um <laughs> so yeah definitely cutting laps was uh uh yeah was was a yes well mate what you mentioned there a bit of you're good at backstroke what about pulling on the lane ropes in backstroke oh absolutely it's probably the reason probably the reason i had all the shoulder problems after <laughs> <laughs> throughout my career and um actually it was only um, just recently that the pool here in Bali got some proper lane ropes yeah. that I can I can pull on. I, I really don't like going into pools that have specifically just ropes. So yeah, um, a proper lane, yeah, <laughs> proper proper lane ropes are good just to give a <laughs> nice good old tug down the lane. It's a recovery lap. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what about always fixing your goggles? I think that was more of a nervous habit, and I think I did that, and um, I, you know, and, and pulling funny faces at the same time while you're doing that. <laughs> I think I was renowned, renowned for that, and um, I was quite particular. One of my bad habits was probably being too superstitious in the sense of 
you know, having a brand new pair of goggles for certain races and, you know, the straps having to be aligned at a, you know, specific way and, and adjusting them probably a hundred times before getting up on the block. So I think those nervous sort of twitches and habits kind of stuck around throughout my entire career. Right, the last one for you. What about doing arms in a kick set? How'd you go on a kick set? I was pretty good, you know. Obviously, I think for me, kicking more in butterfly, I was quite strong in butterfly kick. I could kick easily sub 30 seconds and mm. um, got down to sort of 28s, 27s. In freestyle, I'd probably give, give the lane rope a nice little pull just coming into the wall under the flag so i i probably cut the la- cut the lap there but yeah. um uh, in butterfly i was um you know i was able to you know for us in, with Gennady, we we sort of spend a lot of time working on our dolphin kick and you know when in in going into perth in 98 when they didn't have the 15 meter rule we we now is on on you know on the towing machine in, in Canberra just trying to perfect that you know the speed just making sure that dolphin kick was up to scratch so I didn't um, you know I, I certainly wasn't shy of working on my strengths I'd probably uh, probably miss out on the weaknesses a bit though mate was it hard transitioning for you from a junior athlete to an elite athlete so like were there any areas for you in your training that you needed to improve on you know before that transition was made yeah, really good question, actually, because I I had a, you know, I was I had success early as a as a senior swimmer, and I thought that it would continue, and that I would just have a seemingly, you know, career that would would wouldn't have too many ups and downs, and I I won the uh, the national open championships at the age of seventeen in Perth, and winning the two hundred freestyle, and then I won the Olympic trials in '96, and um, going into Atlanta, ranked number one in the world, into the Olympics, I thought, you know, this progression from age group swimming to seniors, you know, to open ranks was, was at that time, seemed really, really straightforward. But uh, one thing that I learned that I just wasn't, you know, racing on in your own backyard was, was really kind of child's play. Until you race the rest of the world and, you, you know, get get alongside if I was racing the likes of Peter Van der Hugen band, Daniel Loder, mm. you know, those sort of guys, and I'd never raced them before, um, you know, the, the wheels started falling off. And so for me, I was uh, definitely getting that right mindset or just being mentally tough enough to, you know, it's not necessarily dealing with the pressure, but just it's more dealing with controlling your own race and controlling your own strategy and 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 yeah so because you know i was always one of the swimmers that had trained probably more than i needed to and and if anything i probably tried too hard in races and that was my downfall but it just sticking to my own race plan was was probably the most important but um yeah i think it's uh that was that was the hardest transition and coming out of that disappointment missing the final in atlanta by six one hundreds of a second you know, I went from, in one year, I went from swimming with bent arms to swimming with straight arms, going from swimming with, in budgie smugglers to swimming in full body suit. Mm. And then obviously swimming from, you know, popping, doing a, a double leg start to doing a, a track start and then I was swimming underwater as far as I possibly could. So, and I did over 150 races in one calendar year. So wow. I think that the thing that, 
for me was that obviously I experienced this negative kind of uh, experience, but I was lucky enough that I had around the, the right people around me that we were able to turn that into ultimately what, what became my strengths. You know, I was I was a good racer and raced consistently and, um, you know, pretty much every second weekend. Mate, we mentioned just before the 1998 World Champs in Perth and you finished with seven medals in total. I think four of those were gold and, you know, massive swims for you, particularly in the 200 free and the 100 fly. What do you think, mm. obviously, we just touched on then, you know, the, obviously a little bit of disappointment from 1996. Mm. Was that one of the main contributors to that? Do you think it was more your preparation? Obviously, you've fiddled with a few things. Did you feel mm. more comfortable mm. on the bigger stage or was it... Was it, I guess, you know, you're starting to grow as, as a, you know, from a boy to a man. So were you starting to try and assert your dominance on a world level as well? Look, I don't think, I mean, it was only a year and a half after 96. So I don't think there was, you know, I implemented those changes very quickly after 96. And I didn't really have much of a break. I I flew back through Europe and saw some family in Poland. But then as soon as I got back to Australia, I was back into training and, I discovered the straight arm strike very soon and soon into the preparation, and you know I was also I was lucky enough to break the world record at the at the world championship trials and the hundred fly. Mm. Um, so I think it, I don't know, I think it, I, you know, I was ready for that probably in Atlanta, but it was that experience in, in Atlanta that made me probably a tougher athlete, made me prepare. You know, I was training originally for 200 freestyle so i was definitely fit enough it was more about putting all these other things together i you know perfected my start a little bit perfected the underwater got my stroke to a to a more of a solid level under pressure um and you know and i just sort of i kind of had this because I raced so much throughout the year, we had, you know, the Pan Pacific Games in, in 97. We had, uh, you know, the Marin Ostrom Tours. We had a bunch of local meets. And I was so race ready that by the time I got to 98, and, and to this day, I always loved racing outdoors and, mm. and getting out, getting in front of that, that crowd in Perth. And on the first night, swimming in the 200 freestyle and coming away with a win was sort of kind of set me up for the rest of the week. And then, beating the Americans in the medley relay on the last event of the program and just kind of topped it off. So it was, I think it was a combination of everything that I did that from Atlanta, from the last day and to, you know, to, to that first day of the tournament free, it kind of all, all fell together. Hey, talk to me about the straight arm freestyle technique. So for a lot of us out there, and especially Joe Blow sitting on the lounge, you know, you're one of the first mm. people to do it in, in you know, and, and certainly do it at a successful level. Where did it come from and, and what was the theory behind it? So look, I think I did initially, obviously, we're jumping in, in, in the lane with Alex Popov and and looking at, you know, the way he was able to swim and win his golds in, in 92 and 96, and he swam with a very high elbow recovery, uh, you know, I thought I just wanted to emulate him. That's, I thought that's the only way I was going to go fast. Mm. But um, I wasn't, uh, I'm, I'm not six foot eight. I didn't have this, his, his reach was probably seven foot two or yeah. something crazy. Um, and he had enormous hands and, 
he obviously had an amazing feel for the water too. But I was I was a different person, different physique, and it, it basically I, you know, Gennady and I sat down and we developed a stroke that suited me better. And so what you know, the fundamentals of the stroke remained the same. We wanted to have a long stroke. A stroke that was relaxed, um, which is still pretty, you know, really important. Um, and 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 I guess we, for us, underwater high elbow was still really important. So even though my my recovery was straight arm, if you looked at both, you know, I tried to copy Alex underwater, maybe not necessarily above the water. So um, it's a it it visually it probably looks like it's a thrash, thrashing stroke, and but if you look at Let's say a lot of the swimmers now from Dressel to Manadu and some of the fastest guys, Eamon Sullivan at the time, you know, they were all in, implemented that because it, it gave you, gave me anyway, it gave me a lot of inertia with the recovery arm to get a really good straight catch and at the front of my stroke. So there was no lag in, in getting on top of on, on top of your stroke. So then, and the way it came about, we used to do drills in, in training where it was dolphin kick, head up freestyle, um, and then sometimes was straight arm freestyle. And then one day I'd, I'd practice uh, dolphin kick with straight arms. And that was, I started swimming pretty quickly doing just that. And then obviously just, just threw in a bit of freestyle kick. And one day I pushed 24 low in training and I thought, hang on, there's, this is something that is I can develop and um, and yeah it, it became sort of my uh, I guess signature for a couple of years there's Janet Evans swim with a straight straight arm stroke I think uh, there was a Chinese girl that also swam in a similar kind of fashion but from a male's point of view I think I was one of the first it's a good point you make though mate with you know not copying and obviously training with with Popoff and, you know, so many techniques obviously are modelled around him around the world. But, you know, um, I think there was a good quote once about someone asking Caleb Dressel, you know, what do you think about, you know, becoming the next Michael Phelps? And he said, I've never really thought mm. about that. I've always wanted to be the first yeah. Caleb Dressel. So it's a, a good point you make rather than, you know, following, that might not be what's best for you. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, that's a... Uh you know, there was a lot of different qualities I admired about different swimmers. And to this day, you know, I, I admire so many things about Ian Thorpe, the way he was able to to control, you know, high-pressure situations. You know, that 200 freestyle in Athens, to this day, is my favorite race to ever witnessed and watched. And, you know, I'm, I'm so privileged to have known, the, you know, Ian personally and, you know, the, the struggles he went, you know, into this, to that point, you know, obviously with different allegations and obviously losing that event in Sydney where he was the, uh, the favourite and coming back. And, you know, that was regarded as the race of the century with Phelps and Hackett and mm. Van den Hoogen, Van and Thorpe. And, you know, so I think, um, I think, you know, there's so many things you can get from others, from other athletes, but ultimately your own DNA is your own DNA. So you just got to find what's work, what works for you. And, you know, I think people, I, I do admire people that can find their own training method or, the, you know, I could work with a coach and develop their own training method and, and be uh, and be confident enough to stick to it because I was, you know, I, in a lot of the time, you know, you get to the blocks and you sometimes go, oh, shit, I, you know, there is a bit of that, have I, yeah. you know, because, you know, a lot of the time, most of the swimmers they, or in the past, would just be training, you know, would do the same sessions. Whereas I think that's, that's where the progression has come in the sport, that we've become smarter, 
we can design sessions around the athlete, around their recovery, around their nutrition, mm. around the body type and all those sort of things. So, um, you know, we're, we're all different uh, different human beings. So I think uh, that, um, you know, Caleb is, is right in saying what he's saying. Mate, 2000 Olympics in Sydney, and I'll get to the race in a minute. And I, if mm-hmm. for everyone who doesn't know, obviously, it's plastered <laughs> all over the intro to my show. Uh, that's how much I love that race. But you're one of a select group, mate, that got to experience not only home games, but, you know, com games and, and world champs. Yep. What was the experience yep. like, though, for, for the Olympics in Sydney? Oh, look, it was just. It was just phenomenal because it was not, we had, you know, the lead up to, to Sydney was probably more stressful than any other meets that we had. And, you know, we'd remove ourselves and not, I trained a lot and we trained in Hawaii, we trained in Europe, where we, you know, even our staging camp was in, in Melbourne rather than being in Sydney. So um, there was obviously a lot of attention not from the not only from the public, from the media, the corporate world, all wanted to jump on on specific athletes and and be part of this whole Olympic kind of you know this this vibe, yeah. the thing that was happening. So it was was an amazing time because there was great positivity, there was unity amongst you know volunteers and. But it can also, if you get caught up in all these sort of emotional things, it can derail your preparation. So, um, you know, it ha- and I don't know, like I think for, for me as an experience, if I look at it as a whole, was was an exceptional one to be obviously recognized and have success. But then also how easily it can come undone. You know, for me, I, I was... I started with the four by one and the four by two, and we the four by two was such an amazing race. Also, we don't we tend to neglect that, yeah, and where we yeah. broke the world record by three and a half seconds and dominated again. Then I got to my individual races, but I had spent so many so much nervous energy that you know that that's you know the, a small amount of um, you know probably I don't, I'm not sure what it is, but it, it's that freshness maybe had had gone because I left it all in those first two events. But um, so yeah, it's it's you know the crowd that first night. You know I was fortunate enough to swim the first leg in that relay and just listening to the the, the temporary grandstand just rattling and shaking and echoing was just an amazing sort of experience that I'll never forget. And probably the, the other one was um, walking into the Olympic Village and walking through the grounds and walking into the dining room and, and getting acknowledgement and standing ovations from other athletes and volunteers. And that was probably on that first night, I think, everyone that was taking part in the Olympics and everyone that was watching the game watched that relay. So it was, uh, yeah, that was probably one of my most, uh, not just the race, but um, probably the few hours after that when we went into the, the media centre and then we went down to Homebush Bay and um, obviously, yeah, it sort of, you know, said hi to a lot of the fans and things. So it was just an amazing moment for the probably, you know, four four hours after that relay was uh something that i will cherish forever mate leading into the olympics there was a lot of talk around the you know the americans hadn't been beaten i think for you know what was it 10 years or something crazy like that oh well, well, never never oh then never there the, you go the, never yeah been so the event <laughs> the event uh, yeah the event was only included uh, you know in the early 70s so uh 
Yeah, so they had never lost. And they had uh, Anthony Irvin, uh, Neil Walker, Jason Lezak, there's a name for you too, and Gary Hall Jr. Yeah. Um, and he's, yeah. you know, Gary Hall Jr. was known for being a bit out there and, and he was asked in the mm. interview what was his thoughts on the chances of winning, you know, for you guys. And, you know, he, he came out with the famous line, you know, about smashing the Aussies like guitars. What mm. what were your thoughts and the, and the comments with the boys before the race? Was it something you talked about or was it sort of – you know, something that was in the paper and we didn't really worry about. Look, we, we were aware of it, but it certainly wasn't a motivating factor because, you know, we, we, we knew that the Americans had, on paper, they had the best team and there were no, there's no way. I mean, I was the highest-ranked freestyler in the, out of our team and I was ranked number three in the world. So, you know, we had, um, you know, obviously Thorpe coming off the 400. They had, there was... You know, an hour, an hour before that, and, you know, he wasn't really renowned as a 100 freestyle swimmer either. Chris Feidler, that was his last ever last ever swim. He had an, an amazing trials. He's you know, swam sub-49, and 40, I think he went 48-7 at the trials and wasn't end up being in a 100 freestyle final as well at the Games. And actually, Callas being only his second ever major meet, you know, a rookie out of Brisbane, you know, coming into this world stage. So if you look at the, our team, we, we kind of had not really had a chance. They had Jason Lezak, who um, to this day has the fastest ever 100-meter split in the relay of, I'm not sure if it's like 44.9 or something crazy uh, or 40. I'm not sure what it is exactly, but he's still to this day. Neil Walker was, you know, out of Texas, one of the fastest relay swimmers again in history. Mm. Um, Gary Hall again, you know, the gold previously, you know, uh, you know, world champion, etc. So um, yeah, so we the work was cut out for us. But uh, the only and this is where I, you know, I mentioned Brett Hawk early on in the piece where. Brett had trained at Auburn. He knew he was a big part of the NC2A program and he knew how the Americans approached the relays and, and for them, that was almost like the, the, you know, you set the tone for the rest of the meet. If you can, if you can get a good relay up running for the, for the program, it gets, lifts the team and motivates everybody else and, um, and it's, you know, that you're trying to stamp your authority and, uh, the only way we could do it is try and put the Americans off their off their game. And um, I I had a I had a really good warm up in the morning, and they you know I was able to rest, and um, so I, I felt really good and fresh going into that opening leg. And I had no idea what I was going to go, but obviously coming coming out and breaking the world record and giving the Aussies a bit of a lead, um, suddenly put the Americans off their game. They started to over race, which is as you know when you try too hard and you're trying to catch up in the first lap and your mm. you know, your last 10 to 15 metres was going to suffer. And that's exactly what happened. If you look at that replay, you know, all the, the, the second, third and fourth legs in the Americans, they all started fading in the last 10 to 15 metres where our instructions were you got to finish strong. I know it's easy said and done, but we were always, we were focusing on back-ending that 4 one freestyle relay. And, um, and even if you look at Thorpe's, you know, the amount of ground he made up in the last 15 metres, that's where, you know, that, that was, you know, it it's, doesn't happen very often, but when a tactic comes together like it did, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess 20 years on, we're talking about it. So, 
it's uh, it's it was a pretty special moment. <laughs> it takes a lot of patience from him, doesn't it? Obviously, going down and, and Gary Hall's gone out and he's you know taken it on the first fifty, and, and Thorpey's just kind of still just sitting with his race plan. I mean, how hard in that environment that that must have been mm. super difficult. But I guess it just goes to show to the uh, you know the legend of the guy. Yeah, and then that's and that's what I touched on before his composure under pressure, and even in an event that he at that point he had never really swum. He swam at the trials. I think he finished sixth in the hundred free, um, so he barely qualified for that relay, and then he ended up obviously having you know one of a great anchor leg. But um, you know, in saying that though, I must say Gary Hall, you know, he he created the drama around the event and. The media picked up this one quote that was in a, in a Sports Illustrated article that he did mm. when he previewed the swimming, and he said, the Australians are going to be the toughest team to beat. Um, and he was, at, at the time, sponsored by Gibson Guitars, being yeah. a musician. <laughs> yeah. And he said, oh, but I think I'm going to smash them like my Gibson guitar. Yeah. So, uh, so obviously, you know, um, I, I do remember, because uh, when he landed, in Australia, there was basically, I think he made that quote and uh, opening the hotel door in Melbourne at the staging camp and seeing that on the front page. It was, you know, look, obviously we knew there was, you know, there was a, a battle, you know, looming, but um, we never thought it was going to end the way it did. It wouldn't be like Australian media, would it, to take a little quote that wasn't meant to be something and, and plaster it all over everything? Exactly, exactly. But look, it's yeah. I mean, we we can we can talk about it with a bit of a smile on our face because mm. it ended the way we wanted it. Mm. But um, you know, Gary, I, I was fortunate enough to spend a few weeks with Gary uh, or late last year, um, and you know, he's uh, he's a pretty amazing guy. The story of him winning in Athens in the 50 freestyle again, you know, was just uh, just phenomenal. And even Anthony Irvine, who's, you know, obviously winning in Rio 16 years after tying with Gary in the 53 in Sydney, you know. So we're, we, were, we were in pretty esteemed kind of company in, in that event. So And they've all been, to this day, you know, I, I communicate with them regularly and conducted clinics. And there is, I think, you know... I don't know. I think swimming is a sport where where it can be really fierce rivals, but then once you know, once we get outside of the pool, we tend to have a good time and also become friends as well. Mate, I agree with you, and I I think a testament to that goes back to one of my earlier questions, which was, um, you know, if if you didn't want to get stuck in a house uh, during isolation, who you know, who would it be? And you sort of like not really wanting to throw anyone under the bus, and <laughs> and it's not just you. Like I've asked that question to a few swimmers now, and then they're all very similar. So it just I think it's just the camaraderie within our sport. Yeah, look, there's probably a few guys that would. Look, I must say, it's probably one person, you know, that, you know, maybe Scotty Miller, because he used to try and sneak out a lot and <laughs> get back a, really really late at night. And, and, you know, I wouldn't want to be getting in trouble with him. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's probably one person. <laughs> Mate, after the games, um, went through a few tough years with injury, um, chronic back and I think shoulder pains. How'd you yeah, go through yeah. that period of time? Because obviously you were still trying to, you know, compete uh, on a, on an international mm, level. Mm. How did you navigate yeah. through those years? Look, it was a was a pretty uh, was a pretty tough time because I, it was was straight after I didn't have much of a break after Sydney either. I, I felt that even though um, 
you know, had a reasonably successful games. I wanted to continue sort of that form and six weeks out of Worlds be, and Fukuoka, you know, I, I still, the, the thing that sort of I like to do, I like to play other sports from tennis to basketball and, and Jim Fowley was looking after me at the time and, and we, so we'd play just some, some really friendly basketball games at, at the AS and, you know, I rolled my ankle really severely and, and broke a tailor six weeks out of Worlds and, mm. Um, and that was sort of the the first kind of injury that started, you know, a kind of a sequence of events that, um, you know, I ended up going for Kawaka. Miraculously, I ended up swimming the fastest split I've ever had in the 200 freestyle in the in the relay. So we were we were able to defend our titles, but um, you know, my body started then to fall apart. I started getting some back problems, and then. You know, you know, the chain moving up the body started because my biomechanics went great. I started developing some shoulder pain. And so I, um, I, I moved to the Gold Coast for a change of scenery and also uh, just environment and just wanted a different stimulus. And, um, and yeah, so I, I, training with Hacky and Gian and Daniel Kowalski was a really good period. I was probably... You know, one of the, the the fittest I've been, but probably couldn't transfer that into the pool. But you know, continued just getting getting broken down, and eventually tried to move to Sydney under Brian Sutton. Um, that didn't kind of I wanted to train with Chris Fidler and and Brett Hawke and some of the other guys, and that re- really didn't work for me. So I ended up moving back home to Melbourne, where it all started, and um, and started training with Ian Ian Pope. And I, you know, I was at a stage where I'd underwent, you know, a, a shoulder reconstruction, a, a labral reconstruction for my shoulder. And I think I only had like 13 months to try and before the trials for the, uh, for the, for the Athens games. And, you know, there was weeks where I think there was multiple weeks where I would just be able to kick just up and down the pool with a snorkel. And yeah, it was a tough time, but I think what, you know, the thing that I guess swimmers, you know, as I said before, for me, swimming was, a massive part of my life. So no matter what, you know, what was going in, what was happening in my life, you know, if it was physical or mental or whatever, I was still trying to stick around that, you know, that, those group of people. So that swimming fraternity for me was really important. So Popey got me on that team. And, you know, I remember, yeah, kicking 30, 40 Ks a week just to, you know, be able to stay with, stay with the guys and stay with the team and come and stretch and, you know, for the, I think the mentality is, and it's a cliche, you focus on what you can do rather than on the things that you can't do. And, you know, I could barely qualify for the four by one. I ended up swimming, you know, a bunch of relays and, and, and just getting outtouched by the Americans in the, uh, in the four by two to, to get silver. But, um, it's, you know, it's a tough time. And so it comes, it come, came down to my, you know, why I was swimming. I was swimming because one, I love the sport. I love the people that are involved in it i love what the sport stood for um and you know and i, I think it, it shaped me into a person that i am today i think if i gave up at the time when it was all falling apart i think it you know there's i think in life after sport you know i've encountered a bunch of other ups and downs that mm-hmm. i think you know um, i've been able to apply some of those learnings into that now 
Uh, and I think it's a testament to you because, as we just said, it, you know, despite all the injuries, you still went on to make you know three more world champions as championships. Sorry, with Fukuoka, Montreal, and Melbourne. You went to the two thousand and four mm. Olympics, um, Commonwealth Games in Melbourne, and you you know you got yeah. yourself a lot of medals along those along the way. And and I think obviously yeah. a, a tale of of two you know with your career with you know when you were fighting fit and and conquering the world, but then obviously when you encountered some you know um troubles with back sh and shoulder pain and and pushing through yeah. that to, to still you know as i said maintain that international swimming career when when you look back mm -hmm. and to many you know including myself you are a legend of our sport how proud are you, of, you. of what you achieved in the pool look i i, I am because I, I know that you know probably physically i'm, I'm not no <laughs> no no more gifted than anybody else out there you know I, my i had average height six foot three you know i think i had you know i'm not no more explosive than probably the next guy i'm not stronger than the next guy i think you know i definitely i i used a lot of the resources that became available to me so i think them i worked a lot with gennady who kind of opened my mind to being open to change and open to innovation and open to trying things and i think a lot of a lot of swimmers not a lot but i, I think swimmers sometimes tend to you know basically just just say, okay this is you know this is our training plan and um i'm going to go through it but we were able to adjust it if it wasn't working adjust your stroke we're working closely on the suit development at the time and being trying to be innovative in the sport and that's how you know that's how you get the most out of yourself personally and and the most out of yourself you know as a team so i think you know maybe if you know i can't say in hindsight that i've got regrets you know obviously if i didn't break that ankle or if i you know if there wasn't other things that, that have happened but i think in those big times that no matter what was going on with me individually, I was able to put that aside and just I still swim. All my best times and splits always happen and you know, when I when when I swam for my country. So uh, that's probably what I'm most proud of that, you know, when it came to swimming for your mates I was able to deliver. So I think that's um I'm pretty happy about that. Mate, now I've got a couple of bones to pick with you. The, the first one just came. <laughs> the first one just came to me when you said yeah. at six foot three, you know, I'm just an average height. From someone who's five foot seven, all right, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's not an average height. No, I would okay. still look up so, to you. <laughs> okay, so just to give you an idea, I went. I went to my first my first international meet in um it was in rio like i just did my year 12 exams i jumped on the plane everyone was going to schoolies i, I mean i can't complain i flew to rio world short course championships my first race i look left and i'm standing next to gustavo borges six foot nine yeah and i'm like <laughs> and then off to the right i had some crazy russian who was also six foot nine and i'm going this is like I'm, I'm <laughs> and I'm just maybe even even at that time I was probably only six one. So, um, you know, Gary Hall was six seven or six six. So, I think you know, um, but I think you know the younger guys prevailed eventually. You know, and myself and Eamon and even look at looking at Carl Chalmers. I think there were so many changes with with the suits and everything that we were able to. Uh, I th yeah, I think it became more technical and you know. Uh, 
the size didn't always matter. <laughs> Mate, just switching it up now and talking about uh, family life and life outside of swimming, and this brings me to my second bone to pick with you now. Here I am sitting in Western Sydney, self-isolated, yeah. stuck in the house, looking yeah. at a couple of yeah. garbage bags, and I look yeah. on Instagram, and there you are, living the dream yep. over in Bali, beautiful country, always active, always training, having fun with his family and kids, shooting hoops, always looking like you're, just, you're enjoying and you're loving your life. Mate, it's just yeah, not fair. Yeah. It's not fair. <laughs> Look, I, I must say that it, and and I'm not gonna and and I'm not gonna sort of play it down. But I it did the transition initially from uh, elite sport to I and, and not, I'm not gonna say it. Just normal life was very hard because you know I was so fortunate that I was at the Institute of Sport where. I was told what time I had to be on the pool deck. I was told what to eat. I was told, you know, how many times I had to get a massage. Every, we were very much, you know, spoon-fed to, to produce our best. And, um, you know, I think, in, and then life, and, and then that, that career ends, and then you suddenly, ha I realized that, you know, shit, I've, I, at the time, I hadn't started my own business. You know, I had, you know, realizing that you have to source another income source another passion or being as, as driven and and it's it was it was you know it's it's it can be tough at times so um i was able to design a lifestyle now i think that um that for me exercise is a big part of that because if i don't you know i think i one i get grumpy and edgy and people don't want to be around me which i don't enjoy and two is you know i think it's still to this day, people still identify with me as the swimmer guy. So hopefully, uh, um, you know, for me, swimming has a different role on a day-to-day basis. It's more meditative. It's kind of I get in there and I know um, it's my it's almost my daily practice where I just get in there and, and do a few laps much, much slower than what it used to be. <laughs> but um, uh, I think, yeah, I think that just creating that balance, What you know, I still work you know work really hard on the milk and co and the clean business and being able to design a structure where i'm you know i spend one week in australia three weeks in bali spending enough time i've got my kids week on week off so making sure that i'm a you know i think it's almost like creating the a, a peak for, i mean this is a bit of a cliche back almost peak performance in life rather than just uh in sports so you know, getting that balance right took me a long time. And, you know, I've been retired, you know, since since the London trial, so nearly eight years, so it's uh, or over eight years. So it, it took me a while to get it right. So um, seemingly, obviously, I only post post nice, pretty pictures. Yeah. So I'm not going to post the tantrums the kids are having <laughs> on a daily basis. Mate, I, it's funny you say that. It reminds me of, um, you know, as I said to you earlier off air, we had, uh, I've got my daughter who's like a year and a half now, and we always post the, you know, yeah. the, the funny picture of her in the pram, smiling, ready for yeah. her walk. You know, we don't get the, yeah. the video of her screaming five minutes later because she, she wants to get out or she wants some food or, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, exactly. It never makes exactly Instagram. Right. Mate, no, over 10 no. years now with your business, Milk & Co. and, and Klim, Klim for the boys, um, mm. the company doing so well now with all skincare products and shampoos and body washes, etc. When you started yeah. back in 2008, shortly after you retired, did you think you know, you'd be this far along? Did you think it would do this well? Look, I, didn't, I was a bit naive, to be honest, because I, I thought um, 
yeah, I didn't really have any tertiary education in in commerce or I didn't really sort of do any marketing or anything like that. So I, I had a little bit of experience being and I guess promoting brands. I was, you know, I was fortunate enough to endorse obviously Speedo for many years, Braun and uh, Nintendo and Mazda. And so I sort of knew what about what it was all about campaigns and consumer goods and things like that. So um, I just felt that there was actually a funny period within two months, a couple of companies came approached me to, to help them promote their own skincare and, uh, products. And I thought, hang on, obviously, I've been shaving my head since 96. Yeah. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of exposed skin there. And yeah, yeah um, so, and there was at the time, you know, the skin or grooming, I would say skincare grooming was was uh, was on the increase in Australia. Men were starting to look after themselves. And um, so I, you know, I, Probably, yeah, it was, <laughs> I had a, an A4 bit of paper, which was my business plan, and, and I put that together and created three products, presented that to uh, to Meyer, and, and they, they took the concept, and I had to make it, so I was really uh, learning on the job, but I think, um, yeah, I, I never thought I was in, it would be in this game for that long, and it's, and I'm, I'm really sort of uh, pleased that I was able to to survive <laughs> because sometimes when you know like obviously startups there is 90 97 percent of startups fail past five years so yeah. um you know i'm, I'm in a, definitely in a minority where we've been able to evolve and you know the 10 years in business has seen a lot of change from the way people shop and what they're after and and price points and whatever so we've been able to adapt and i've been able to learn and um so yeah, that's probably another thing that I'm, you know, you know, quite proud of. That you know, not having a background in that area to educate myself, I guess, on the job without making too many crucial mistakes to to still keep the business viable. Mate, swimming or business? What what do you think's been harder or more difficult for you? Oh, business by far. Business was, you know, the thing with business is that. I find there's obviously a lot of variables and there's there's also, I, I feel that, um, you know, the, the, you're relying on a, on, on, the lo on a lot of other people too sometimes and it, you're not always in control of that destiny. So um, I think ultimately in swimming, you, you, I think we, I was very fortunate that I was in the, in the right culture in my entire career. Um, in business, you know, culture is it's it's a th it's a word that's thrown around a lot, but it's so important. And you know, and obviously, I was I'd be on the blocks, I'd be the master of my own destiny. I had to perform on the day. Whereas there are so many people that kind of ultimately, the person that picks up your products and takes it to the register, they're the ones to make a decision on your success. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is, yeah, I think. Um, there is there's a lot of things for even for example right now with COVID you know there's there's variables that you can't foresee um, you know same as with the Olympic Games being postponed for a year you know yeah. these these you know but um, I think business is is much much trickier and you're juggling you know not only you know I was very single minded as an athlete and my entire life was all about you know performance in the pool and I think in in business I think you you need to nurture different parts of yourself from a professional basis to personal and spiritual and all those sort of things just, just so you can keep going. 
But you mentioned there the Olympics being pushed back a year. It brings me back to a question I think I skipped over. Um, <laughs> oh, you, so some of these questions I've asked, you know, and you, you're such a brilliant talker, you've actually answered a question before I've answered it. So I, yeah. I, I skipped over a couple. So, But I'm glad you bring it up. Mate, what, what do you think, you know, how you would have dealt with it um, given that it's been pushed back a year? Take us inside, you know, the mind of an athlete at the moment. Look, I think it'd be very difficult. I actually had a call from my old physiologist and trainer, Jeremy Oliver, today, who's now the head trainer at Aston Villa. And even for, you know, a professional club like Aston Villa where they can't come together, they can't come, they can't do their recovery together. They, you know, like we're and I you know, and I was talking about how important, you know, the swimming community or sporting community or club community is to an athlete's performance. Um, to suddenly be then removed and be isolated and be in lockdown and then be, you know, you can have, you can have programs and you can be working, you know, doing workouts in your backyard and swimming in the ocean. It's, but it's not, it's, it's obviously it's the people that can adapt and, um, and be unaffected by the change will be the ones that obviously ultimately will succeed where, um, but you know the the only thing that is that is I guess fair about this situation is that everyone's in the same boat. So there's no one that has an advantage, and there's no one that is um, ahead of the game. For example, so obviously you know there's unprecedented times where there'll be five years between the Olympics. But I, I feel probably for the athletes that maybe they were just really trying to time their run of their career and having their Olympics being the swan song and, you know, they were probably nursing injuries and trying to get to that last hurdle and, you know, now being pushed back another year, there's probably a possibility of them not making it. Um, Or, you know, there's those sort of circumstances which we won't know about. But I think... um, you know, from a from a training point of view, it's it's it comes down to mindset, and this is not. And again, you know, those guys when they when they get to the trials next year, it's it's you know there will be who who can innovate themselves, who can think about oh let's let's focus on what I can do rather than what I can't do, mm. and, and and that mental toughness. So I think everyone's in the same boat and it's obviously the right decision. I mean, there's, there's no way the Olympics could have gone ahead. No. So, um, you know, and, and I've, and I follow a lot of the swimmers and, you know, it's credit to everybody. They've, they've, you know, they've taken it in their stride and, you know, seeing the guy swimming in the ocean and doing a lot of weights. And I mean, I, I saw Kate Campbell punch out 12 chin-ups the other day on Instagram made me feel like I'm a weakling. So, you know, these guys, they, 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 if, imagine, if, imagine if a bunch of world records gets broken next year yeah. with, you know, with these guys having like three or four months off swimming. So um, it might, uh, it might, yeah, who knows? It might, it might, <laughs> it might open a way to a, a dry-land program. <laughs> Mate, you're absolutely right, though. And as you know, you know, doing the podcast, I talk to a lot of the athletes at the moment as well, and you know, been checking in with them all, and so many different stories. You know, I was talking to Taylor McEwen the other day, who was basically saying, yeah. you know, this was going to be her her swan song, so she'd already started making plans 
outside of swimming and what she was going to do. And yeah. obviously they pushed it back. So she had to readjust yeah. and, and she's going to keep yeah. going with it. Um, someone like Ellie, yeah. Ellie Cole, um, brilliant Paralympian yeah. for Australia. And yeah. uh, she actually yeah. injured herself not long ago. So she's, she was cheering that things got pushed yeah. back because, you know, it just gave yeah. her yeah. more of a chance to get, you know, back to her best. So, so many different yeah. stories, eh, that are, you know, going to make up this, um, you know, 2021 Olympics. Yeah. I mean, Brent, Brent, Brent Hayden, who, who won, who tied for, for gold and a hundred freestyle Melbourne in 2007, you know, he, um, you know, he decided to make a comeback for Tokyo and, uh, you know, he had a few years off and, um, and then obviously realized that they've been pushed back. So yeah. now his, his preparation's gone from a year to two years. So, will be, you know, he's in his mid-30s. It'll be interesting to see how his body handles that extended preparation. So, um, look, I think, you know, I think we're going to be, I love, I still love the sport. I still, you know, I think, thank God to, thank God for social media because you can see a lot more. You can, you know, I love watching James Gibson's squad of, you know, Manadu and the Clow and those guys training and you get, you know, like if, you know that well, that didn't exist when I was swimming. So you you feel like you're closer to the athletes, and it'll be interesting to see how they um, all come up. You know, hopefully early next year and start start racing. Now, mate, bringing it back to uh, lifestyle and, and and your own lifestyle and, and staying fit and things like that. And you you don't know me mm -hmm. that well, but I'm not the most active person, and uh, I'm the type <laughs> of guy that uh, is always saying he's going to train and start his nutritional plan on Monday, and then Monday never comes <laughs> around. That's probably yeah. my go-to. I'll start on Monday. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> well, isn't it the average that ninety percent of diets? Don't, they fail if you start on Monday. Exactly. So the I think best ones are the on ones on uh, <laughs> January the 1st. January the 1st. Yeah, that's the best. Yeah, I think it's the same average as a Monday, I think, <laughs> that was. <laughs> Mate, you seem like you've got a, a fairly good balance there. Give us a few tips for people like me who are looking to obviously have a bit of a lifestyle change and, and you know, be a bit more active. And, and what are a few things that sort of keep you on the straight and narrow? Mm. So look, I think for me, it's always been about movement. So whatever it is, um, it's not necessarily about having a, a, a constant structure or having a program that I follow. Or because there's some people get so caught up on having something that they need to see either on their phone or for you know, or having knowing the, the amount of reps that they do. And um, like I was, my son and I yesterday, we were. We were playing games like he was on. I was on the assault bike, and I had to go as hard as I could as long as it took for him to do two laps. And then we'd had thirty seconds off, and we did forty of those. So yeah. it was like, you know, it just you can make up. It's, so for me, I think exercise is, you know, movement. And I, you know, we talk about um, a good friend of mine. He's, he's into self care, and he said, for you, as I'm, you know, I'm carrying a bunch of injuries. My ankles still playing up. My shoulders occasionally. It's motion is lotion. So I try and, you know, I probably do three structured exercise sessions a week where I go either go into the gym or if, you know, if it's outdoor sessions with weights and kettlebells and, you know, try and overload the body. And then I'll probably do two or three kind of incidental sessions if it's, you know, a few laps in the pool with the kids or surfing is a big one um, and then just body bash or, you know, catching a few waves. So I think it's, you know, making sure it's part of your, your lifestyle. So 
um, playing. I used to play a lot of basketball and tennis and things. So it doesn't. People get caught up if I miss a, you know, miss a class in the gym. I can't do it. I can't do anything that day. So I think I've moved past that mentality. Mm. So, um, so yeah. So I think you know if you can have two or three structured ones. And then two or three incidental exercise sessions. If it's just playing soccer or kick to kick with your kids, you know that's uh, that, that's a that's a tick. And then you know, for me, swimming is 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 my own sometimes, you know, solitude time that I that I'd enjoy. So you know, finding a time to either going for a walk or a jog by yourself and listening to I don't, I don't necessarily listen to put podcasts or ebooks or i tend to just to be in my own head mm. um i think that's also really important to to find time for yourself so that's uh, that's pretty much i don't i don't really have any secrets you know i just try and um when i get a chance and i try to do it in the morning because i find that i'm most it actually sets me up for the day i'm clear-headed and definitely until three or four o'clock in the afternoon mm. uh, and it's just yeah and if i feel like doing something else in the hour I, I will but um i think exercise in the morning for me has always been a um a much easier thing to handle love that you said you, you don't really listen to podcasts that much you've mate, you've been on that many podcasts lately you'd you'd you take up your no, whole week you'd, while you'd while take while up while the whole week listening back to no, your no. podcasts <laughs> No, no, I'm only saying uh, while I exercise because I try and my, my, my Gennady used to make make fun of me because whenever I would say I'll be on the exercise bike warming up and either reading a magazine or looking at your phone, he's like, that's just, you know, you got to listen to your body, you know, like you've got to, if you, so first, so I try to, and I've had friends that have run ultra marathons for nine to ten hours, and they don't have a single beat in there, you know, or they don't have headphones yeah. or any music. So um, I love podcasts, and I'm, I'm <laughs> going to listen back to, and I'm going to listen back to this one. <laughs> uh, yeah, mate, as well you should, as well you should, mate. Great tips there, and um, I'm definitely going to start on Monday with that. Now that's going to be first thing okay. Monday. We'll start. Um, start tomorrow. Start tomorrow. <laughs> I should, you know, I've got a, uh, a Zoom training session with my swimmers tomorrow morning, so I probably should get out of the seat and get a bit active. That's it. Sounds good. <laughs> Mate, I like to finish all of our uh, chats with some sort of less serious questions and some rapid sure. fire just to, you know, get a little snapshot inside your brain. So uh, sure, sure, answer sure. these, you know, first thing that comes to your mind. So um, favourite okay. music and artist? I would say my favorite music would be, I, I love the band Coldplay, so I was listening to them early on today, so uh, I would, yeah, they've, um, they're, and then The Doors were a big part of my, I used to fall asleep to The Doors while I was swimming, I think that psychedelic music was yeah, a yeah. big part of my swimming career, and then, you know, Coldplay, I sort of got into, you know, as you know, as I was coming out of out of swimming, and now I enjoy them now. I mean, good choices there. Good choices so far. What about books or movies? Look, when it comes to books, I only really read biographies. Yeah. I don't like fiction. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. like. I'm with you. Uh, I tend I tend to you know when it, you know I'm reading Flea. The uh, obviously read 
uh, read all the sort of, uh, you know, red hot chili peppers kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, so I'm halfway through Flea at the moment. Um, but I think it's, you can, that's why, you know, we were talking about individuals, you know, like he is a, uh, you know, he's a, such an individual, so different to all the other band members. So, uh, and the same with, you know, we're talking about with Caleb Dressel, Michael Phelps, Ian Thorpe, these great athletes have got, great attributes but they're all different so um that's why i like reading biographies because there are some things you know having read you know obviously kelly slater's to mick fanning's you know they're again all legends but they've all had something different that made them tick so um and, and i like discovering that i tell you libby trickett's book's a good one too i'm nearly at the back end of that one it's a it's a good book to get Libby's Libby's an amazing person and she's always supported, you know, I've been in the swimming game, even post-swimming, having sponsored and and helped to run the World Swim Series, so we we do a bunch of the open water events and without fail, I think she definitely set the world record for a 2k ocean swim being eight months pregnant. Pregnant, yeah, I do remember (laughs) So she's not only, she's a great supporter of the sport, but... um, you know, she's she's honest. She's uh, you know, she. I, I think she, her smile is in almost engraved in on her face constantly. Even though she talks about the, you know, the struggles that we yeah. all encounter on a daily basis, but she's uh, she's a special one. Mate, what about your favourite movie? You got any favourites? Yeah, definitely. I would say my favourite would be Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt, <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah, that would be uh, that would that would be my favorite movie. I, I so the story with that that movie, I um, I moved out of the Institute dorms very early on. I, I I don't know how they let me do that, but I moved in with the great Matt Dunn, who was our best IM swimmer for many yeah. years, and and Matt Dunn was all into latest gadgets and whatever. So Matt had invested into the old LCD discs. So it's almost like a record player, but like it's this, it's, a, it's like a CD, but it's a side of a size of a record. Mm-hmm. So he bought he bought the first Pulp Fiction movie, and we watched that on an on an LCD, which was. Uh, um, to this day, I'll, he goes, look, I've seen this. I'm going to go out. You watch this movie. I, he came back a couple of hours later. I was still in shock. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, what about your biggest fear? <laughs> you wouldn't believe it, right? Yeah. I was, um, I have something about being stuck in the middle of the ocean at night. If, if I had to fall off, if I fell off a boat mm. in the middle of the ocean somewhere, I reckon I would be, I wouldn't say that, you know, I don't know if that's the biggest fear, but I, it's something that I'm, I've thought about. It was like, it's, you know, just what's lurking underneath, yeah. you know, how long am, how long am I going to survive? Or, um, so it's probably, I think maybe that's the metaphor of not, of the, of the uncertainty of not knowing what's happening. <laughs> I, don't think probably, you're alo- yeah. I don't think you're alone there. And I, you know, take away being out in the middle of the ocean. I think, you know, I don't know if I'm alone on this, but it, I could be. What about swimming on your own in the pool? You're on your own. Could just be on holidays. Mm. You're on your own. It's yeah. late. And you start looking mm. around as if there could be a shark. I used to do that yeah. when I was younger. I used to yeah. think, what's happening? I used to have a, just a quick yeah. look around like something was going to, yeah. I don't know, some secret latch door was going to open and, and something was going to happen. So I don't think you're alone there. Yeah, but it's funny though because I, for example, the other day before they closed the beaches here in Bali, I 
I swam from my local beach. I swam up, you know, for about 30 minutes and then swam back for 30 minutes. No problem, right? It was, you know, 9 o'clock in the morning, beautiful sunlight. But it, I think if I had to do that swim at night, someone would have to pay me a million bucks <laughs> yeah, to do yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, exactly, mate. What about your favourite meal? Have you got one? Have you got a few? What you... uh, I'm a big fan of Mexican, so I love Mexican with a, and and it has to go with a margarita. Oh, of course. I think uh, you can't you can't have Mexican without margaritas. And now that I'm 42, um, obviously I wouldn't have eaten a lot of uh, I wouldn't have had too many margaritas while I was training. But yeah. now um, it uh, it's it's a staple. Um, mm. We have Taco Tuesdays. Here in the family, so the kids the kids love their their Mexican, but I'm a, I love my steak as well. So I think between the two, um, yeah. So the Mexican and steak, I would say. Mate, a little bit more swimming related now. What about your biggest rival mm-hmm. from back in the day? Do you have one? Maybe you got a couple. Yeah, and I think a lot of people won't think it's it's a coincidence. I think Jeff Hugel was was probably my biggest rival because yeah. not only did we he again he was six foot three we had the same reach we did every event camp together i used to go up and train with him and ken wood we knew each other so bloody well and then we used to go and you know swim for the same spots and you know obviously our entire our career is pretty he was a, a little you know only less than a year younger than me so our career spanned at the same period um, and if you, you know, like, I think I've looked back at a lot of our races, there was never more than 0.1 of a second between us, even at the Olympic games in Sydney, where we lost to, to last Florlander, there was still 0.04 or something between us. So, um, he was a great rival. And I remember uh, there was a camp we did in the Richardor at the Cotton Tree Pool, where we had to do, uh, we had to do, I think it was 24 fifties on a minute butterfly pace. And I think we're all both we were the same and they had to keep stroke count and we all did like 18 strokes and held 28-2 for I think every single one so it was one it's I think we were yeah I think we're almost uh twins when it came to um to our events what about the funniest teammate was there any anyone on the on the team that could crack a joke or yeah look I, I there's this two and they 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 feed they feed off each other um, so Eamon Sullivan and Adam Lucas, both of them, if you put them together in the room, or to this day, recently, before Eamon's got married, he came up here for a pre sort of, <laughs> I think it was a pre Bucks. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure if any of us, it might, it might have been a post Bucks. I don't know. But, um, so Adam came with him and yeah, so those two guys definitely kept us entertained on teams. Hey, what about, and this can be in business as well as swimming, what about the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, I don't know. Look, that was from my first coach. I think, I don't know if it's um, advice, but it's something that, you know, I sometimes have to be reminded of. You know, it's all about, I think I've been fortunate enough to have success and experience some good times. and But I what Gene Jackson said to me from Mel Vixen, he said, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. Yeah. So um, I think there's, you know, I, I look at some of, you know, the greatest athletes right now, say Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, and, you know, you look at some of those great basketball players that have time for the fans and, 
you know, they, they devote so much time outside of their sports to great causes. And, um, you know, it's never, I think there was an era where arrogance was kind of accepted in sport and they, it was almost like you have to be arrogant to be successful. Whereas I think, you know, the, the, the good ones now, I think are more respected for, you know, just being open and being, you know, almost, almost accessible, really. Yeah. I think the accessibility makes them great, greater athletes. Absolutely, mate. I think it's a great piece of advice. Now, before we wrap up, mate, I, I just wanted to throw this one at you. Just a uh, question yep. without notice. I didn't actually put this on the on the sheet that I sent you. Um, yep. I, I have a top five interviews of all time, right? I, I decided when I started mm. this, I wrote down my top five. And I won't tell you yep. the rest of them, but on on <laughs> there was... To, to get the boys back together for the 4x100 freestyle relay. And this is, again, yep. showing you how much I loved that that race. <laughs> and and yeah. doing a reunion podcast, mate. Getting, getting the boys back together for, yep. for a chat yep. to relive the memories. And obviously, you know, as the juices get flowing, you guys will have stories and, and a bit of banter. What, what do you think? What are yep. my chances? Do you think we could make it happen at some point? Man, if, if any year is going to happen, it's obviously our 20-year anniversary of, exactly. of, the, uh, of the event, 15th of September. Uh, I reckon, yeah, I think you've, you <laughs> if any year is going to happen, this year it's going to happen. So um, I, I'm up for it, and I'm sure that, uh, look, we actually, and this is probably pretty lame, but we do send each other a message every year yeah. to say, remember how good we were back then. It's all right, you've earned it, you've earned it. And Chris Bidler <laughs> normally leads that, leads that, uh, leads that, text message trail but um yeah no i reckon i'll be up for it and i reckon the other boys will be too mate i will we'll have to we'll work out what's happening um you know at the moment in the world by by september because i had in my uh my notes that i'm happy to fly to bali and we'd get everyone to bali on like a junket um, i'll try and get some <laughs> yeah, sponsors right. so this show will be like, right. proper sponsored so no one will pay for their flights you know the Fantastic. sponsor will pay for all of it we, we'll get on the beers uh, yeah, or, or nice. margaritas. Um, it could be a Tuesday. Yeah. We might be on the margaritas and uh, <laughs> yeah. and relive the memories. So uh, I'll, I'll right, I, I, I love it. I'll keep Let's in touch with you on, on that idea. <laughs> Sounds good, mate. Sounds good, Robbie. <laughs> All right, mate. I'll let you get back to Bali life and and living the dream over there. Um, thank you very much, mate, for coming on the show and having a chat. It's been a pleasure and an honour for me. As I said, you know, you're very much a legend in my eyes, and I appreciate you taking the time to to come on for a chat thank you thanks so much it was yeah great to share obviously um it is quite sentimental being obviously the 20 years in sydney so um i think i will be reminiscing that that special time more and more but uh, it was great to go in depth into some of these uh these occasions and obviously you know uh, the the people we spoke about played massive roles in in a lot of our lives and Mm. especially mine so it was nice to kind of uh reminisce it as well well matt as we touched on just saying i'm going to try and sort out this uh this podcast for the four by one so we'll 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 look forward (laughs) to maybe catching up again sometime in the future for another chat mate but um until then until then buddy hopefully uh you and your family stay safe over there uh with everything going on at the moment try not to let the kids drive you too crazy and um thank you very much again for coming on off the block swimming podcast Will do. My pleasure. Thanks so much. No worries, mate. Today's episode, as always, is proudly powered by Pro Swim Workouts.
Massive thank you again to Klimi for coming on the podcast. And as if it wasn't enough for Michael giving his time, he has also given all off the block swing podcast listeners a 50% discount off his skincare range. And all you got to do is visit the website at milkandco.com.au and use the promotional code CLIMBLOCKS. That is K L I M B L O C K S. When you use this code, you will receive 50% off all your purchases, which is an amazing deal and one you should not miss out on so again if you want to receive that 50 percent off discount just visit the website at milkandco.com.au and use the promotional code clemblocks start shopping online today as if that wasn't enough just like santa claus clemmy is also sending over five milk and co gift packs for our podcast to give away to off the blocks listeners so stay tuned on facebook and instagram over the next few weeks on how to win your very own milk and co skincare products for free Our next episode drops Tuesday, the 28th of April, features one of Australia's most decorated Paralympians and nicest people you will ever meet in Ellie Cole. Awesome chat with an inspirational athlete and one you will not want to miss. Until then, though, guys, it's bye for now.